We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts, and today the next passage we come to is Acts 13, 42 through 52. It says, As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them at the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the power of your word. And thank you for how relevant it is, even 2,000 years later, to our lives today, Lord. We pray that you would bless us as we examine this passage of Scripture. Lord, we understand that we need your Holy Spirit to reveal these things to us, Lord. I've, I've got notes, we've got plans, but unless you show up, Lord, it's all, it all amounts to nothing. Oh God, would you move in our midst, speak through your word, and glorify your name. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me just say at the outset here that this passage in Acts 13 is one that rocked my world. Uh, it helped me see God as I had never seen him before. Uh, some of you may have seen that Narnia movie where the little girl uh, named Lucy goes into a wardrobe at her relative's house and uh, discovers as she pushes past all the coats that the wardrobe is actually a portal into another world, the beautiful and magical world of Narnia. And that's sort of how I felt when I studied this passage for the first time and recognized its implications and also compared it to other passages in the Bible. It just opened up a whole new world for me and uh, allowed me to see truths about God, glorious truths about God that I had never seen before. Uh, it almost felt like I was saved all over again, <laughs> to be honest. Obviously, that's not technically possible, but that's certainly how it felt to me. That's how revolutionary this constellation of spiritual truths was. 
in my life. And for those here this morning who have not yet discovered the things that we'll be talking about today, uh, that I I hope uh, they can be that for you as well this morning. I hope that by the end of the message today that you also will come to see God perhaps as you've never seen him before. And uh, so jumping to a a different movie now, uh, I'll be Morpheus, you can be Neo, and we'll journey through this passage together. Just be advised that by examining this passage, you are taking the red pill, all right? Some of you get that, some of you don't. Now, you may remember last week that uh, we looked at Paul's sermon in verses 13 through 41 of this chapter. Paul visits the city of Antioch and uh, goes to the synagogue and, as was customary for visiting rabbis, is invited to share with the congregation anything he desires to share. And so he gets up there and, beginning with Abraham, he explains to his Jewish audience how Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Paul walks through Israel's history, pointing out all of the ways in which God has been good and gracious to the Israelites. And yet, Paul explains, the climactic example of God's goodness and grace is when he sent a Savior to his people in the person of Jesus. As the Old Testament prophets predicted, Jesus came to this earth as a human and was eventually crucified on a cross. And yet, he wasn't a criminal. Instead, the reason, ultimately, that he was crucified was to pay for our sins. Right? Our sins deserved and even demanded God's judgment. And yet, in his incomprehensible and incomparable love for us, Jesus endured that judgment in our place. And then, just as the prophets predicted, Jesus rose from the dead so that he's now able to save everyone who puts their trust in him. So that's what's just happened in in Acts 13. Paul has shared that message about Jesus with those people in the synagogue of Antioch. The story then continues where we pick up this morning in verses 42 and 43. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So initially, we see the Jews respond very well to Paul's message. They can't wait to hear him teach again. But things unfortunately go downhill surprisingly quickly. Look at verses 44 and 45. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So what happened? that turned the majority of the Jews against Paul so quickly. Well, when the Jews saw the Gentiles, now those who aren't Jews, also showing interest in the gospel, a kind of nationalistic zeal overtook them. Verse 45 describes it as jealousy. 
Right? They were jealous for their unique identity as God's chosen people, and they didn't want the Gentiles to have any part of that. Right? They looked down on the Gentiles and considered them unworthy to have such privileged access to God or to be a part of God's family. And because the Jews responded in that way, something very ironic happens. They don't exclude the Gentiles from God's family. Rather, they end up excluding themselves from God's family by rejecting the gospel. We see that in verses 46 and 47. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Paul tells the Jews that it was appropriate for him to share the gospel with them first, uh, since, after all, they are God's chosen people and have priority in God's plan for the spread of the gospel. However, since the Jews rejected it, Paul says he's now turning his focus chiefly to the Gentiles and quotes Isaiah 49.6 to support that approach. Uh, this verse from Isaiah shows us that God intended the whole time for the message of his salvation to be proclaimed to everyone, to the very ends of of the earth, it says. So the door is open for anyone and everyone. We then come to the verse that's at the very heart of this passage. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So first, just notice what's happened in this passage as a whole. The group that you might expect would receive the gospel, right, the, the Jews, ends up rejecting it. While the group that you might expect would reject the gospel and their paganism, the Gentiles, ends up receiving it. And that's the way things so often work. You know, people who externally seem like they have it all together, are often so full of self-righteousness that they can't bring themselves to humbly admit their need for a Savior. While those who have uh, more obvious struggles and shortcomings in their lives are often able to see their sin and, and their desperate spiritual need, and as a result, they trust in Jesus to do for them what they know they can never do for themselves. So that's, that's one important aspect of this passage, that dynamic at work. However, there's something else as well, something we see specifically in the verse I just read, verse 48. Let me read it again. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Did you hear that? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now take a moment and just set aside any 
theological uh, agenda or presuppositions that you might have. I mean, obviously, we're not able to do that perfectly, but try to do it to the best of your ability. Right? Don't read anything into the ver this verse and just let the verse itself speak. It's actually not a, a, difficulty, a difficult verse at all, really. I mean, the grammar of the verse, at least, is, is quite simple. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Notice that it doesn't say that people believed and then on the basis of that belief were appointed to eternal life. It's the opposite, isn't it? Their belief doesn't lead to their appointment. Instead, their appointment leads to their belief. And you can look at other translations as well, and they basically say the same thing. The NIV states that all who were appointed for eternal life believed. NASB, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. King James, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So the main idea of this passage that I'd like to spend the rest of our time today focusing on is that all who are sovereignly appointed to eternal life will voluntarily choose to believe. All who are sovereignly appointed to eternal life will voluntarily choose to believe. Welcome to Narnia. As I mentioned at the beginning, you know, this was a, really a huge discovery for me. Um, it teaches a, a doctrine that is controversial in some circles, a doctrine known as predestination, which is the idea that God sovereignly predestines certain people to be saved. And as a freshman in college, I, I researched that teaching. I, I first read a book in which different scholars were arguing for different positions on the issue. So some arguments were in favor of predestination while others were opposing it. And as I read this book, I cataloged all of the different Bible verses that these scholars on both sides of the issue were citing. There were uh, several dozen of them. And uh, as I, um, uh, after I did that, I then spent several months, really, just slowly going through those verses, one at a time, with uh, John MacArthur's Calvinistic commentary supporting predestination in one hand, and John Wesley's Arminian commentary opposing predestination on the other hand. So just verse by verse. And as I went through those verses, I kept meticulous notes about my conclusions about all of them. And what I discovered to be the most decisive verse in the entire Bible on the subject of predestination was, can you guess it? Acts 13, 48. Uh, after reading John Wesley's comments on the verse uh, opposing predestination, I expanded my study to other Arminian commentaries, and honestly, I couldn't find a single one that can, even came close to uh, suggesting an interpreted, uh, a solid interpretation for this verse that, that didn't involve predestination. And so my conclusion is that there just isn't any other way to interpret this verse other than to say that God sovereignly appoints certain individuals to eternal life with the result that they believe. 
Now, of course, this isn't the only verse in the Bible that teaches predestination. There are literally dozens of others. Yet I do believe it's the most decisive. But just to demonstrate that there are indeed other verses that teach this quite clearly, let me take you to what I believe is the second most decisive verse on the subject. Actually, an entire passage. Romans 9, 6 through 21. Now, since this is such a significant cross-reference, and since you really have to walk through Romans 9 to really feel the weight of it, uh, that's what we're, we're going to do for a little while. We're actually going to spend a decent amount of time on this passage, Romans 9. Uh, in the chapter, Paul is explaining, just to give you an idea of, of the context here, he's explaining how God's promises to Israel haven't failed, even though the majority of the Israelites aren't saved. And he begins his explanation by stating in verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, not every ethnic Israelite is a true Israelite. And there are a lot of people who are biologically descended from Abraham and who are ethnically a part of the Israelite nation but who aren't actually true Israelites in their hearts. They don't have hearts that, that trust God or that want to follow God. And that makes them not true Israelites. It's uh, similar to the way we might describe someone who lives in Pittsburgh, but doesn't really do many of the things most people would expect, like a, a loyal Pittsburgher to do. Right, let's say they're uh, maybe a huge Baltimore Ravens fan, or maybe they haven't ever stepped foot in a Primanti Brothers restaurant, and they have virtually no clue about Pittsburgh's history as a producer of steel. And so even though someone like that might technically live in Pittsburgh, I'm pretty sure most people in the city wouldn't consider them to be a true Pittsburgher. And in a similar way here, Paul's distinguishing between an ethnic Israelite and a true Israelite, with the implication that only true Israelites are legitimate recipients of God's promise. And so the point of that is that God hasn't broken his promise to Israel because it's only the true Israelites, the ones who have put their faith in Jesus, that are legitimate recipients of that promise. But here's the provocative part. The reason many ethnic Israelites aren't true Israelites, Paul says, is ultimately because God hasn't chosen them to be true Israelites. Just let that sink in. Yes, they've rejected their Messiah. Yes, they have no interest in, in following God. So those things make it appropriate to say they're not true Israelites. But the ultimate reason they're not included among the true Israelites is because God hasn't chosen them to be a part of true Israel. Paul illustrates this in verses 7 through 13 by going back into Israel's history and pointing out how God chose Isaac above Ishmael. Even though both Isaac and Ishmael were both biologically sons of Abraham, God chose Isaac above Ishmael as the recipient of his promise and as the son who would experience God's redemptive blessings. 
Not only that, but God did the same thing with Isaac's two children, Jacob and Esau. He chose one over the other, Jacob over Esau. And Paul goes out of his way here to emphasize that God's choice wasn't based on anything good or bad in either of these men. Verse 11 states that God made his choice, quote, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Election is a synonym for predestination, not because of works, but because of him who calls. In other words, God made his choice on the basis of nothing but his own sovereign will. It's not like God looked down from heaven and saw that Jacob was slightly more deserving of salvation than Esau. No, God chose Jacob over Esau before either of them was even born and on the basis of nothing but his own sovereign will. And if you're sitting there right now thinking that that's a little hard to swallow, I think you're right. But that's what Paul teaches. And as we'll see, He's going to say it even more clearly in the subsequent verses. Look at verses 14 and 15. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, God has the right to choose those to whom he extends mercy. Right? It's his Decision to make. A lot of times I think that we imagine because God's shown mercy to some, that he's somehow obligated to show mercy to all. Yet that's just not the case. Uh, you might compare it to the President of the United States deciding who, if anyone, he's going to pardon. I mean, let's say that a thousand convicted prisoners all write letters to the President requesting a pardon. And let's assume for the sake of illustration that all of these prisoners are guilty of the crimes that they've been convicted of. So does the president then owe a pardon to any of these prisoners? Of course not. Right? They deserve to be in prison. They've committed crimes. The president doesn't have to pardon any of them. And if he does choose to pardon some of them, but not others, then he has every right to do that as well. Like he wouldn't be unjust for just pardoning a uh, hundred instead of the full thousand. And in the same way, God doesn't have to show mercy to anyone. Mercy, by definition, is undeserved. God doesn't have to extend it to even a single individual on the face of this earth. Like, he could send everybody to hell. Understand? And that would be a just and righteous thing. That's what we deserve. So when you think about it, the truly astonishing and provocative idea isn't that God would choose to show mercy to some and pass over others, it's that God would show mercy to anyone at all. I mean, that's the question we should be asking. Like, why does God show mercy to anybody? So the decision of whether to extend or withhold mercy 
is God's decision. As he says in verse 15, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And Paul continues in verses 16 through 18, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So here again, God has the right to show mercy selectively on whomever he wills, as verse 18 states. And we don't have time to really dig into God's interactions with Pharaoh that Paul's drawing from in the book of Exodus, but suffice it to say that Pharaoh is another illustration of this principle. Moving on to verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he, God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? So, let's look at this objection Paul anticipates. When I read this objection as a someone who's trying to interpret Scripture well, it confirms for me that we've been interpreting things correctly so far. Like, if your interpretation of verses 6 through 18 doesn't naturally raise the objection of verse 19, then you're not understanding things correctly. The objection of verse 19 should naturally follow from a proper understanding of the preceding Verses, And I believe the interpretation I've been suggesting for verses 6 through 18 does indeed raise the objection. Paul states in verse 19, and that objection is basically this. If God is the one who ultimately determines who's saved and who's not, then how can he still punish people for not being saved? I mean, is that really fair? So that's basically what Paul's asking in verse 19. But look at his response in verses 20 and 21. (laughs) But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? Wow. (laughs) That's heavy. So Paul's basically saying... Like, who do you think you are to even ask that question? Like, who are we as creatures to think that we have the right to act as a judge over our Creator? And not only do we not have that right, but who are we to even think we have that intellectual ability? It would be kind of like my two-year-old son, Luke, questioning how fair my rules for the house are. Obviously, his brain isn't anywhere near uh, developed enough to properly evaluate the fairness of those rules. And uh, that's the case infinitely more so with us and God. Who are we to presume that we can act as a, a judge over him? And honestly, it really shouldn't surprise us that uh, there are some things about God that you know, we just can't understand. Uh, you might compare it to an ant looking up at a human, right? Uh, if an ant stands on top of his little anthill and looks up at a human 
That ant has really no clue about the thoughts or the, the nature or the complexity of what he's looking at, right? He, he can't even begin to comprehend all of that. And that example is just one finite creature trying to figure out another. So how much less are we as finite creatures able to comprehend the being or the ways of the infinite God. So why would we be surprised if there are some things about God and the way he operates that we just can't understand? So bringing it back to Acts 13, 48 now, we find essentially the same truth being taught, that the people who believe are those who have been sovereignly appointed by God to eternal life. However, this passage in Acts 13 also teaches human responsibility as well. It teaches, or at least clearly implies, that we're responsible for our actions and decisions. So first of all, first of all we see this in the simple fact that this verse says that these people believed. God didn't believe for them. They believed. And we're accountable for doing so. Also, back in verse 46, notice how the Jews who rejected the gospel bore full responsibility for that decision. And Paul says that they judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. It was their doing. They brought everything that was coming to them on themselves. And so we can conclude that two paradoxical truths are taught in this passage. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And even though those two truths might at first seem to be contradictory, I do believe there's ultimately a way to reconcile them. I do believe there's a way in which God can choose who is and isn't saved and at the same time justly punish those who aren't saved. I don't understand it, but any being that you or I could understand completely really wouldn't be worthy of being called God. <laughs> now would he? God is sovereign in salvation and holds people accountable for the decisions they make. Both truths are taught in Scripture. And so my approach is just believe in both. Uh, it, it's similar in many ways, when you think about it, to the Trinity. Every true Christian believes in the Trinity, which is the teaching that God is three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and yet that He's also one God. And those two truths would seem to contradict each other. I mean, how can God be both three and one? Nobody in 2,000 years of church history has ever been able to comprehensively answer that question. And yet, what do we do? Well, we still recognize that as the teaching of Scripture. Because in various places, the Scripture refers to the Father as God. Then in other places, it refers to the Son, Jesus, as God. Then in other passages, it refers to the Holy Spirit as God. Yet it also says very clearly that there's only one God. So how can we reconcile those things? Well, we don't know. <laughs> But we believe them both 
because Scripture teaches both. We just chalk it up to the fact that God is infinitely more complex than we can comprehend. And I believe we should take that same approach to the sovereignty of God. So rather than just trying to explain away what Acts 13 teaches, I believe we should just accept what it teaches and humbly acknowledge that the ways of God are beyond our comprehension. There is a way in which God can determine who is and isn't saved and at the same time punish people for not being saved. Perhaps in heaven we'll understand it. But for now, we just believe both since the Bible teaches both. However, <laughs> I feel like I've been saying that a lot this sermon. Having said all of that and having come to that conclusion, we're not done. <laughs> See, so far, all of this has been very intellectual and philosophical. And if that's not the way you're naturally wired, like some of you, you're like really just dialed in. This is your stuff, right? Others of you, I appreciate your grace and sticking with me so far. Um, so we, it has been very intellectual and philosophical so far. And that is a good place to start, but a terrible place to end. It's good and necessary to start with a rigorous examination of Scripture and see what it teaches about these things and, and spend a good amount of time really thinking that through. But it would be a tragedy to stop with that. Because understand that these truths about God have been revealed to us not merely to stimulate contemplation in our minds, but to inspire worship in our hearts. That's the purpose of all theology, right? If your theologizing doesn't grab a hold of your heart and lift you into the worship of our glorious God, you're not doing it right. You see, the truths we encounter here in Acts 13 about God's sovereign appointment of certain individuals to salvation it really leads us to an entirely different way of thinking than what we naturally have. A God-centered way of thinking instead of a man-centered one. We're talking here about a, a shift in our whole mental paradigm. And that shift has two main features I'd like to very briefly highlight. First, a shift to a God who's really God. In Acts 13, we see a God who's God, not in name only, but in reality. After all, ultimately, for God to be sovereign in salvation really just means He's God. <laughs> yeah, He's God of that too. <laughs> and what a glorious God He is. And then second, not only do we see a God who's really God, but we also see grace that's really grace. I can tell you right now, guys, I never truly understood God's grace until I embraced these revolutionary teachings about God's sovereignty. Yet once I embraced these things, it, it opened the door for me to see 
God and, and His grace is I had never seen them before. And that's what I meant when I said earlier that Acts 13 rocked my world and opened my eyes to Narnia. Right? For the first time, I understood this, this biblical concept of grace. I mean, how incredible is it that before time began, God chose me not because of anything good or deserving within me, but solely because of His grace. I mean, I deserved nothing but eternal judgment for my sins. And yet God, in His grace, sovereignly chose me to be among those He would rescue. Not only that, but we understand from all of this that every good thing we enjoy is ultimately a product of God's grace. Salvation in its entirety, from the very beginning to the very end, is a gift of the grace of God. Even my faith in God is a gift of His grace. Right? I, I couldn't even believe until God graciously enabled me and led me to do so. God's grace, dear friends, is an amazing thing. <laughs> More amazing than I could have ever imagined. And let me tell you, that makes me so grateful. You know, I remember as a kid playing um, different Mario games. And I played these games on a Super Nintendo, so that kind of tells you how long ago it was. And usually on these Mario games, there were uh, special bonus levels that you could unlock by doing different things. And that's kind of the way I see these teachings from Acts 13 and Romans 9 functioning. These passages and, and the many other passages in the Bible that talk about God's sovereignty should unlock new levels of gratitude toward God for the grace that He's shown. Levels that, that you didn't even know existed. We can see even more clearly that salvation isn't something that we've earned for ourselves through our merit or even obtained for ourselves through our wisdom, right? Being like wise enough to put our faith in Jesus. Rather, salvation is truly a gift of God, a gracious gift of God, through and through. And once the reality of that grace really sinks in and gets a hold of your heart, it produces within you the most profound gratitude. And you rejoice at you as you marvel at how amazing God's grace is really is.